Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Together PDX podcast. I'm your host, Elise Gallus, and you are in for a treat today because you're going to get a double whammy with N.T. Wright and Esau McCauley. Actually, a triple whammy because Tim Mackey is our facilitator and we'll be asking them questions. What an honor to listen in to a conversation with these three. Here's how it's going to work. Both Dr. McCauley and Dr. Wright will have a time of individual teaching. Then we'll hear some of their discussion time. The topic is around race, the Bible, and its impact on the church. This conversation originally took place in 2020 over Zoom. So without further ado, here's part one of N.T. Wright and Esau McCauley's 2020 Gospel Gathering, Reading the Gospels While Black. Good morning, and thank you for joining us from all across the Pacific Northwest for today's conversation with Dr. Esau McCauley and N.T. Wright on reading the Gospels while Black. We have a huge turnout today because of this amazing topic and the amazing speakers. Uh, My name is Kevin Palau. I have the privilege of serving as uh, president of the Luis Palau Association, headquartered here on Portland's west side. And I especially want to thank our co-hosts, Uh, for the first really in a series of webinars, but our co-hosts, Regent College in Vancouver, BC, Portland Seminary and Seattle Seminary. And it's so encouraging to see this kind of collaboration across these educational institutions to help us become better kingdom leaders in these critical days. And uh, I mentioned this is the first in a series. The next one um, is June 2nd uh, with Dr. Sorry, with David Brooks and Reverend Jen Bailey, Building Trust in an age of division. Uh, we also want to thank the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust for their help in putting this on and for the amazing work they do all across the Pacific Northwest. And then to also Together PDX, which is a movement of hundreds of churches in the Portland area working together on issues of justice, serving the community, praying together, sharing the good news of Jesus. So with that said, let me open in prayer and we'll dive in. Father, we come to you as brothers and sisters in Christ across our denominational and ethnic distinctives, desiring to honor you and to reflect the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ in the way that we live, in the way that we treat each other. And so we pray that you would use Esau and Tom and Tim as he guides the Q&A to make us more effective leaders and guide our time in the name of Jesus. Amen. So today's event, we're going to have uh, two different parts, two sections. Um, each time we'll have teaching from Esau and Tom, followed by a time of Q&A. And then we'll have a quick five-minute break between these two um, sections with the presenters. We'll have a final Q&A at the end. And to start off, I want to welcome our moderator for the Q&A portion, Dr. Tim Mackey, pastor, co-founder of the Bible Project, and all-around awesome guy. Tim, take it away. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Uh, This is a really special event. It's really good to be here with you all virtually. Um, We've got uh, a really large group of people that are eager uh, to hear our presenters and the conversation today. 
um, almost 1,500 people. And, uh, you know, I, I went into this thinking it would mostly be people from uh, the U.S., Canada, um, and uh, it turns out we've got people from time zones and countries all over the planet here, as I'm watching in, in the chat. Um, so some of you are so eager, you're up in the middle of the night, and that's awesome. We're so uh, uh, excited that you're here. Um, today's event, it's called uh, Reading the Gospels While Black. Uh, this is going to be a conversation uh, about how the good news that Jesus is the crucified and risen king of the world, how that news shapes how we are thinking and talking and acting about these very critical issues in our time, issues of justice and racism in our communities uh, and in the church. And so we have uh, two really special voices that are going to be uh, speaking to these issues here today. So let me uh, introduce uh, our speakers and tell you a little more about bit about them. Uh, our first speaker is going to be Dr. Esau McCulley. He's a professor of New Testament at Wheaton, at Wheaton College, and uh, he's a minister in the Anglican Church, and he's uh, become an important public voice on religion and culture as an editorial writer for the New York Times. And last year, Esau, uh, you released uh, your second book. Uh, your first book, it was actually outstanding, your published dissertation, but it didn't turn out to, to be the bestseller, uh, though it's really great on inheritance and messianism and the letter to Galatians. But uh, it's your second book, Reading While Black, uh, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope, uh, that has uh, become a, a really widely read uh, and well-received uh, statement that's addressing the role of the Bible in these important conversations about justice and racism so thank you for being here. Thank you for uh, writing that book, and uh, we're eager to hear from you. Um, I also want to introduce uh, Dr. N.T. Wright. Uh, he has been a professor of New Testament and early Christianity uh, at Oxford uh, and at St. Mary's College at the University of St. Andrews. Um, he served for many years as the Bishop of Durham in the Anglican Communion, and he's now a senior research fellow at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. Um, we're really honored to have uh, each of you here today. Um, what we're talking about are uh, challenges uh, in human relationships and society that goes back as far as we can tell. Um, issues of ethnic hostility, uh, racism, and how racial inequities get woven in to the fabric of our communities and even our churches. And so, uh, Esau and Tom, you know, for you to know, this is a, a big audience here today, almost 1,500 people, and these are um, ministry leaders, faith leaders in, in church and nonprofit. And so this represents an audience for whom, alongside the pandemic, these issues of justice and racism, uh, this is like the number one conversation these people are having. And this is an audience of people who they want to act, they want to do something, and respond, but they also uh, are a group that wants to respond faithfully to the story of Jesus and to his vision of the kingdom of God. And so um, uh, what we're going to do is going to have two parts. In this first part, uh, each of you, Esau, uh, you'll speak first, and then Tom, feel free to just pick up and uh, follow after Esau. And these are going to be opening statements and thoughts about a biblical perspective on these issues. And then I'll um, be collecting uh, questions. I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, 
uh, about that and moderate a Q&A. We'll take a break. And then the second uh, set of talks that each of you will give, Tom and Esau, will be addressing both historical and contemporary issues in light of these biblical perspectives. And then again, I'll moderate a Q&A. Um, one last note is that uh, all of you watching uh, virtually, um, you should see somewhere where you can submit questions. Um, and during the, the question and response time, we've got a, a crew on our side that's going to be fielding and monitoring those. Um, what you can also do, I believe there's a feature where you can like like or vote a question. And so if there's a question you were going to ask, but somebody said it better than you, then just like that or vote that. And we'll make sure to pay attention to the questions that are getting the most the most attention. And that's it. Um, thank you again, everybody, for being here. And uh, thank you again, Tom and Esau, for being here. We're really eager to uh, hear what you have to say. So, uh, Esau, I'll, uh, I'll let you begin. Thank you all for having me. Um, I'm really honored. It's always a little bit strange to speak because, you know, for three and a half years, um, Tom was my boss and he directed me through my graduate program. But as they said, the part that I'm going to say now didn't come from him. So any any mistakes that I make here are my own, not Professor Rice. What I'm going to do, like he said in the first one, is I'm going to give you what I want to call a biblical theology of justice. So forgive me if this part, this talk feels a little bit more lectury and I'll be a little bit more free in our other discussion. And the reason we're going to start with what I want to call biblical theology of justice is because there's a lot of people who talk about justice and, and what does this idea mean? This idea that Christians contend for justice and what does it mean within a particularly Christian framework? And so that's what I'm going to do for the next, I don't know, 15 to 20 minutes. So any Christian discussion of justice has to start with God. The scriptures depict God as the God of justice. According to the psalmist, God is the king who loves justice and who established equity. Psalm 97 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. God's very rule is rooted in righteousness and justice. What does it mean to say that God loves justice? I'll venture to say that one meaning that you could derive from that is that God loves fairness or right dealing. Deuteronomy says, for example, you must not be partial in judging. Hear out the small and the great alike. You should not be intimidated by anyone for judgment is God's. In any case, it is hard for you. You bring it to me and I will hear it. To say then that God loves justice means to say that God loves to see people treated fairly and that God intervenes when that's not the case. There's a danger here of oversimplicity, because the moment you begin to talk about God's justice as a quality, we have to qualify it or expand the conversation, because we don't always want God's strict justice. We want his mercy and his grace. The good news, then, is that God is not always just towards us. This is clear from the beginning. When we see God being gracious towards Adam and Eve, allowing the human story to go forward despite their sin. Grace again intervenes in the wilderness, where despite Israel's idolatry, God reveals himself as the one who is compassionate and gracious. The Bible is full of passages in which God's graciousness forestalls strict justice. I have in mind here places like Psalm 51, verses 1 to 20. David is very happy in this context because God doesn't give him what he deserves. And so there's an apparent tension here between God's strict justice 
giving us what we deserve, and his gracious desire to save those who call upon him. Much of Israel's history then involves God not enacting the strict terms of the covenant. Instead, as a manifestation of God's grace, he sends prophets to warn them again and again and again that if Israel does not want to experience God's justice in the form of punishing their covenant violations, they need to change their ways. One of the things that's really interesting here, though, and this is this will, this will get later on to our modern distinctions that have little to do with reading of the Bible. When God sends his prophets to judge or to call Israel back to faithfulness to the covenant, God tends to cluster three things together that we separate. God, for example, when, you, when he sends the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah speaks about Israel's idolatry, about the way in which they've abandoned the worship of the one God of Israel. God also t- uses Isaiah to speak about how Israel steps on the poor. What does it mean, those of you who grind the faces of my poor, of the poor? And he begins to talk about Israel's personal immorality. So in other words, personal sanctity, fidelity to the one God, and how the society treats individuals are manifestations of covenant violations. And God sends the prophets saying, you don't want my strict judgment or my justice, therefore you need to repent. The, the, the whole of the Old Testament, in a sense, is like God begging Israel for them not to receive what they actually deserve, justice. But this apparent tension then between God's justice and his graciousness is ultimately resolved on the cross of Christ, where the extent of God's justice, graciousness, and covenant faithfulness are revealed. This is discussed in places like Romans 3.21 to 3.26. This is why God is both just in keeping the terms of covenant, the covenant and the justifier in the person of Jesus. So when the Bible then speaks about God as a God of justice, it does speak about fair dealing, but it also has in, embedded in it this idea of graciousness. So if you want to begin to talk about a Christian theology of justice, yes, the Christian has a, a theology of the way in which society should function. But within a Christian theology of justice, there's also this mercy that, that over that over superintends the entire thing. So there's always the possibility for the person who's been engaging in injustice to begin again. The Christian tradition always has this opportunity for forgiveness and redemption and the chance to start over. In the Christian tradition, even in the context of the fight for justice, we don't just easily throw people away. I'm going to cheat now and give you, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to hold back on some of the things I want to say for the historical discussion for later. So more about God, the God as it relates to the God of justice. God, when the Bible speaks about God as the God of justice, this justice is often co-located. There's something that often goes alongside a discussion of God as the God of justice. And that thing that is often co-located is the concern for the needy. For example, you see something like Psalm 9, 7, attached to Psalm 16 to 18, Psalm 9, Seven, sorry, nine, Psalm 9, 16 to 18. So God is a God of justice. And in that same Psalm, it talks about God as one who's the champion of the poor. The Bible repeatedly talks about God as the champion of the oppression of people who are stepped on. Examples of this are places like Psalm 12, 5, Psalm 14, 6, Psalm 40, 17. The poor can then turn to God for help when society has turned its back on them. In other words, Concern for the injustice done towards the poor 
is a manifestation of God's justice. Justice then is not simply about fair dealing, but God's desire to see the oppressed receive justice. And this same concern is seen in the the prophets who contrast God's justice with oppression of the poor. So God is just, therefore you shouldn't oppress the poor. You see that in places like Isaiah um, 117 and Isaiah 1012. Further, the prophecies that, or depictions of the coming king that are, that are wrapped up in the Messiah, places like Psalm 72, 1 to 4, and Isaiah 11, 1 to 9, include, as a part of the Messiah's coming reign, this idea that he's going to establish justice. Fair t- treatment, especially the people who are stepped on. So when we talk about justice as it relates to God's own character, God shows himself as being the champion of the poor and the oppressed in society. And this messianic prediction of the coming or depictions of this coming king is a king who's going to finally embody through his government God's own justice. This same treatment, though, this same, these same themes, though, a fair treatment with a particular concern for the needy is not just reserved for God as a champion of the poor. It is also called for in human to human interaction. God calls upon Israel to be fair to the rich and the poor alike in their interactions with one another. Here I have in mind passages like Leviticus 19.5. The, the idea then is that God, that the people of Israel are supposed to be impartial. But the focus of the multitude of biblical texts, this is the important part. Is not the protection of the poor, the rich from the poor. So the Bible is not concerned at um, excessively with the poor taking advantage of the rich. The concern of the biblical text from Genesis to Revelation, the overriding concern is the protection of the poor from the rich. For example, when Moses um, legislates against misconduct, he calls upon the people to take to, to avoid um, taking bribes against the poor in a lawsuit. When God warns Israel of impending judgment, he then warns them of the judgment arises from not the exploitation of the poor by the rich, but by the rich who step upon the poor. It's important to note in this context, living a huge emphasis on focus on Israel, that God has the same concern for mistreatment as it relates to um, pagan nations. So when, when Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar in Nebuchadnezzar chapter four, verse 27, and, and Daniel warns Nebuchadnezzar of his judgment, he tells Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel four, chapter 27, that you can avoid this judgment that's coming upon you if you stop your mistreatment of the poor. So this is, this is, this seems to be something that God requires of both pagan and, um, covenant nations. We see the same concern for the poor in the New Testament, where Jesus begins his ministry by quoting Isaiahic passages that speak about the good news being preached to the poor. Here I have in mind Luke chapter 4, verses 26 to 21. Furthermore, we cannot take seriously the idea that Jesus preached the kingdom of God without asking about the way in which that kingdom is depicted in the, in the Old Testament. So if Jesus is evoking these host of images around the kingdom of God, biblical studies teaches you, basically biblical interpretation principles teaches you to turn yourself back towards the Old Testament and say, what does the kingdom of God look like in that context? And that takes you back to those same messianic passages that we spoke about earlier, where the king is the champion of the poor and the needy. Let's point out, though, in this context, that Jesus's ministry to the poor was not limited to the healing of the sick and the performing of miracles. All the poor were not healed. 
Christians believe that our ultimate healing is eschatological, the resurrection of the dead. Jesus' ministry of mercy towards the suffering was meant to articulate the kind of kingdom Jesus will bring about during his second advent. So Jesus' healing ministry is a manifestation of the kind of kingdom he wants to bring into place. Namely, a kingdom of justice, righteousness, and the transformation of bodies and ultimately creation itself. To participate in that kingdom, the poor and the rich alike must repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. In other words, it's important to recognize that Jesus trusted the poor enough or respected the poor enough to give them moral agency, believing that through their holiness of life, they can reflect God's coming kingdom. So the good news to the poor is not just that they get bread, but that they get the kingdom and the transformation of life that comes alongside with it. According to Paul, God is most glorified then in using these very neglected people, the stepped on peoples of the world, to manifest this glory. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1, so 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. The good news to the poor then is not only they might have bread, but that Jesus, the king of the universe, invites them into his kingdom and his family through grace. Now, acknowledging the need for the, the conversion, the transformation of the poor need not be put in conflict with a social analysis of the causes that lead to poverty. That these two things can be put together and that the church can both be a witness of social transformation and a witness to personal transformation through an encounter with Jesus. We might be tempted then to describe biblical justice as the fair treatment of others that reflects God's own character with a particular concern for the ways in which individuals and societies often deny fair treatment and exploit the poor and the weak. This seems to be an assumption that this exploitation will continue until the Lord's return. But nonetheless, like all other sins, God calls us to battle it nonetheless. Now, with the time that I have left, I'm going to actually address something related to this. Um, we talked a little bit about a biblical theology of justice with God's concern for the poor, God's concern for fair dealing with a particular concern for the poor. But there's a doctrine that we need to kind of append to this, given the state of our modern conversation around sin and injustice that, to, to bring this whole thing together. Because sin and justice are related doctrines. So we can't speak of justice without speaking about sin. What is sin and who can engage in it? The scriptures speak of sin coming into the world as a result of the fall. That's Genesis 3. And the idea of individuals committing sins against individuals or against God is not controversial. So we can just put that to the side and move forward. But the Bible also depicts the possibility of institutions being sinful and dishonest. For example, we need to return to our discussion of the course in Israel. In Exodus 23, verses um, 6 to 8, it says, You should not pervert justice due to the poor in their lawsuits. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and those in the right, for I will not acquit the guilty. The warning against bribes points to the ways in which money can create a context in which the poor are consistently deprived of justice. Isaiah 58 In Isaiah 58, God convicts or condemns the nation for creating a system of labor that exploits the workers. We need to belabor this point too much, but the Old Testament prophets often address kings. In the Old Testament, the kings were the government. 
So all the passages condemning rulers for injustice speaks to the reality of the societies itself or governments themselves being unequal. When we refer to the possibility then of corporate or systemic sin, we're referring to the ways in which sin isn't limited to personal acts of animus. It refers to the ways in which societies can be ordered in unhealthy ways. And this includes a society's economy, a society's social structure, a society's laws, or some combination thereof. To take a less controversial analogy in the Western context, lust is not simply something that exists interpersonally in the United States, but the entirety of our entertainment industry and large parts of our economy brought on lust and desire and the commodification of the female and the male form. So how can we think theologically or biblically about structural or corporate sin? There are two ways into this from a biblical perspective. One way is to look at the link between sin and power. When someone has a sin, lust, greed, racism, and you add to that sin power, then the impact of that sinfulness can have a greater impact on society. It can spread from them to the wider world. A second way of looking at um, corporate or structural sins is to look at Paul's view of spiritual powers. When Paul speaks of non, the non-Christian world as the kingdom of darkness in places like Colossians, or he refers to the principalities of powers that rule the world in places like Ephesians. And when he says that the present evil age is dominated by spiritual evil in Galatians, it stands to reason that these powers who influence the non-believing world would create inequalities rooted in greed, exploitation, and racism. In other words, I'm claiming that the denial of systemic racism is rooted in an over-realized eschatology in which we assume that the kingdom has come in America. Here, the Anglican baptismal um, service is instructive. And when you baptize in the Anglican tradition, I don't know what y'all do in y'all context. I'm going to talk about the Anglicans for a minute because Tom's here and I'm here. There's a threefold renunciation that you have to do when you're baptized. The first thing to renounce is the devil and all the spiritual wickedness that rebel against God. Second, you denounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of the world that corrupt and destroy the people of God. Third, you reject the sinful desires of the flesh. In other words, as an Anglican, you reject when you become, when you're baptized, the influences of the world, that society leads us to sin, the influence of spiritual powers to lead us to sin and our own desires. So in other words, the Anglican baptismal service, the baptismal service that undergirds most of our enunciations in any Christian context, assumes the reality of corporate and structural sin. So when we begin to discuss um, from a biblical perspective, the reality of corporate, systemic, or structural sin is clear. When the discussion of racism is added to it, it is simply the claim that the sin of racism is not limited to individual acts of animus committed by people with no social power, but that it is, a, it is an act committed by people who do have social power and therefore influence structures of society, or it can exist under the power of spiritual influences that also corrupt and distort the world in which we, 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 we function. And it's precisely here that Christian charity is most needed. There is no theological reason to deny 
the reality of structural or corporate injustice in elements of society, including racism. It would match the biblical data. The real question is why would we expect sin or racism as the one sin that as a society we've evolved out of? Like no one believes that we're born in a society that's not affected from top to bottom by covetousness or lust or greed. It's only racism. It's the one sin in society we've kind of figured we don't do that anymore. But here's the thing. If it matches the biblical data, Christians of goodwill can disagree on the relative impact of injustice or racism in particular elements of society. There's going to be disagreement there and the best way to battle it. The work of the believing community then is to discern the nature of the problem, to be able to identify it, describe it, and figuring out the best ways to make our societies more just and fair, recognize that we won't be able to complete that task before Jesus returns. What is less helpful is assuming that articulations of these concerns around corporate or structural sin arise from a worldview that's antithetical to the gospel. Instead, we should think the best of one another as we attempt to discern the mind of Christ. In short, then, the scriptures, the tradition, and reason lead us to acknowledge the reality of personal and corporate injustice. And it has always been a part of the church's mission to battle that injustice, including the injustice of racism. And that work remains a part of biblical faithful, biblically faithful Christianity in our day. Thank you. Hi, I guess it's my turn to jump straight in. I'm hoping that I'm coming through. And um, if I'm not, then perhaps one somebody on the production team will tell me. Uh, but thank you for the welcome, Tim. And thank you, Esau, for all that you just said. I saw somebody on the chat saying, uh, I need to take some time out and think more about this. And I think particularly your remark about the assumption uh, uh, that we don't have racism anymore is a kind of over-realized eschatology. I think that's really, really important that uh, we, we are already the modern world and we've solved all those, all those sorts of problems. That attitude is, is very, very dangerous. I did see somebody else say something which worried me when I was preparing this today as well that the overarching title of this uh, this evening for me, um, morning for some of you, um, is reading the Gospels while black. Um, we haven't talked yet very much about the Gospels, and I'm not going to touch on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John very much in this talk. But in a sense, that's the goal of everything that we're doing. Uh, for me, one of the great goals of the Christian life is being able to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and feel, yes, we are on board with this story. And, and in a sense, we're, we're hampered from being that and doing that by the sort of things that Esau has been talking about. And because we haven't understood what actually much of the rest of the New Testament is about. So just some quick introductory remarks about um, the New Testament and uh, when we're dealing with questions of ethnic identity and so on. First, there was no real color problem in the ancient Mediterranean world. There were people of all different shapes and sorts and sizes, and especially colors in uh, the, the Middle East, as we would call it now. It was a melting pot. It was on the trade routes. People came through from different areas. People stopped. People traveled this way and that. And particularly, we have to remind ourselves, not least in addressing the American situation, that slavery in the ancient world, which was, of course, ubiquitous, slavery had nothing whatever to do with ethnicity or color. From time to time, some nations or peoples were enslaved by others, but normally 
to be a slave, all you had to do was lose a battle or lose a lot of money or something, and you could be enslaved. Even if you'd been uh, a prince in your own land, if you lost the battle, you might be enslaved. The major social divides in the ancient world, which color so much in the New Testament, um, were between male and female, between slave and free, and between rich and poor. And we see in the New Testament as a whole, and not least in the Gospels, a whole lot where those divides get blurred and crossed and different things happen. And the major ethnic challenge from the Jewish point of view was obviously that between the Jews and the rest of the world, the the Gentiles, the Goyim, the nations. Um, with all the nations, whether it's Greece or Rome or Egypt or Turkey or wherever, all lumped together as basically non-Jews. The Greeks had a similar thing where it was Greeks versus barbarians, and barbarians just meant that they talked bar, 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 bar. Nobody could figure out what they were saying. So that was a way of the Greeks saying we're superior to them. And so there were other things like that, but they weren't functioning in the same way that the 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st century have seen questions that we now call race. They didn't think in the way that we do. And one of the great things then, done with my little mini intro, one of the great things that we see right from the start in the early church is that they're having to grapple with issues of identity, which are to do with, if not ethnicity, at least related issues. The first controversy in Acts, Acts chapter 6, is because in the church in Jerusalem, the Hebrews and the Hellenists are not getting it together. This is a matter of distributing food for the widows who are being looked after by the church. This is the church already living as an extended family, which is a major social experiment. Um, It's extraordinary how they went for that. And the the Hebrew-speaking, or probably the Aramaic-speaking widows, and the Greek-speaking or Hellenistic-speaking ones um, weren't being treated evenly. And the church say, okay, we have a problem. We're going to pray about this. We're going to appoint seven people to sort it out so that the apostles themselves can carry on with their ministry without getting into too much admin. I wish that advice was always taken by people running churches, but that's a whole other story. But because the linguistic divide between the Hebrews and Hellenists was probably flagging up some other issues of local culture where people had come from the Greek-speaking world, Jews, to live in or near Jerusalem, but they would bring other traditions, other ways of doing things to what the local native population would have done. And then that's repeated in reverse in places like Rome, and I'll come back to that, where people go to Rome, but they maintain the uh, cultural mores that they've grown up with in their own place. So then in the book of Acts, of course, we see Peter going to the house of Cornelius and Peter having had a little lesson from God the previous night or previous day saying, I now know because God has told me that God shows no partiality. Peter is leaping across the Jew-Gentile divide and he gets in hot water for it when he gets back to Jerusalem. But then particularly in the church in Antioch, and this time it's Peter who has a hard time coming to terms with it, according to Galatians chapter 2. In Antioch, Jewish Messiah people, i.e. Jesus followers, and Gentile Jesus followers are eating together, breaking the barrier which would otherwise have existed because Jews, devout Jews, believed that Gentiles, because they were basically idolaters, were unclean. 
And so you shouldn't eat with them um, the different levels of restriction, depending on the different groups of Jews. But for some, you shouldn't even go into their houses. Now, please, let's be careful here, because it's easy for us to say, oh, they were just wrong because they were being either racist or wicked or whatever. But the whole Old Testament says that Israel is called to be separate, to be special. And this, from the New Testament point of view, was part of God's build-up to the coming of the Messiah. Israel needed to be separate from the nations so that then the Messiah would be able to come appropriately into the world. But part of the revolution that happens in the early church, which Paul is then in the vanguard of um, following Jesus, as we shall see, is to say not that that was stupid or wrong or not God-given, but that was part of the preparation which has had its day and can now be rightly and safely set aside. Not because Gentiles weren't idolaters, not because they weren't Mm -hmm. sinful, but because the death of Jesus on their behalf, on behalf of the whole world, has dealt with the problem of sin and uncleanness. That's the great argument of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Not that, oh, well, we can just forget these distinctions because they're outmoded, but that in Christ, They have died to sin and come alive to a new life. And so have we. So we are all one in Messiah Jesus. And that's why, for instance, in Acts 17, verse 26, Paul on the Areopagus says to the gray beards of Athens that God made from one all different types of humans. There's a textual variant there. Some says from one blood, but it's certainly from one from one source, however you nuance that. And if only the church had grasped that message of Acts 17, we'd have been a lot better for it. And the book of Revelation sees the redemptive work of Jesus in chapter 5, verse 9, um, not as something which will eventually result in a totally future state uh, in uh, a community of people from every nation and kindred and tribe and tongue, but that is the reality now. And in Revelation 7, verse 9, that's repeated. And again, this is the vision of the church. And it's the vision that you get in the church in Antioch. It's the vision that you get in the church in Galatia. And in Galatians particularly, and Esau and I have wrestled over Galatians happily together for many years now. And that's been a delight. Um, and this little plug, I've got my own new commentary on Galatians just about to emerge. And you'll see all this writ large there. The problem there is that the Jews have been given permission by the Romans not to worship the Roman gods. That was a big permission. And now suddenly there's this new group of people who are partly ethnically Jewish, but a lot of them are Gentiles. And they're not worshiping the gods either because they say we are children of Abraham because we are in Israel's Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. And the Romans don't know what to do with this. The local Jewish community don't know what to do with this. They want to regularize it. And Paul says, no, you don't, because there is a new reality unleashed upon the earth, which is a different kind of human family, neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave or free, no male and female. You are all one in Messiah Jesus. That imperative to unity across traditional boundaries is written into every letter that Paul wrote in one way or another. And it's absolutely basic to the New Testament. And one of the things I'm going to be talking about in the second session is how on earth did Bible-believing Christians for hundreds of years largely ignore that New Testament imperative? Because you see it's there in Ephesians as well. 
Ephesians 1.10 says that God intends to sum up in the Messiah everything in heaven and on earth in him. And in Ephesians 2, we see how that's achieved. Jews and Gentiles alike are sinful. God deals with their sin in Christ so that they are justified by grace through faith. That is Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. So therefore, Ephesians 2, 11 to 21 to 22, Jew and Gentile are standing on level ground and there is no divide between them. And if Paul had seen the ways we have put up divisions in the church based on various ethnic categories, so-called, I think the Paul of Ephesians 2, the Paul of Galatians, the Paul of Romans, I'll come to that in a moment, would have been absolutely horrified. Because in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, Paul declares, and when you think of a, a Pharisaic Jew saying this, you realize how important it is, that there is now a new temple, the dividing wall that characterized the old temple, keeping Jew and Gentile separate, has been taken away. And now in Christ and by the Spirit, God comes to dwell in his Jew plus Gentile united family. And then it's because of that that in chapter 3 he can say that through the church, the many splendid wisdom of God, a polypoikilos sophia to theou. That's a lovely word, polypoikilos. It's many colored. It's like what you get in a wonderful border of flowers with, with every color you can imagine there. And Paul is using that many colored image to say that when you see the church like that, then this reveals to the principalities and powers the fact that God is God and that Jesus is Lord. And if we ask ourselves in our own day, why is it that so many people in the wider world, in the so-called secular world, don't believe the gospel? One of many answers, there are other answers as well, is that the church has not been displaying the fact that there is new creation on the loose, that that's what God is in the business of doing. One of my favorite passages for this now, and I've been working on this just recently for other reasons, is Romans chapter 15, verses 7 to 13. You know how it is when people expound Romans. He says guiltily, having done this many times, you spend so long on chapters 1 to 8, and then you you know that 9 to 11 are important as well, but you maybe leave chapters 12 to 16 for maybe the last one or two lectures of the course, if you're lucky. And when you do that, you sell yourself and the church and Paul short, because after the intro in 12 and 13, chapters 14 and then 15 through to verse 13 are where the whole doctrine of justification by faith really lands. Because we are one people in Christ, recognized by and only by the fact that we believe that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, as Paul says in Romans 10. Therefore, Jew and Gentile must learn to live together and must learn to see the things which would have divided them in terms of cultural practices, what they eat and drink, which holy days they keep, etc., as basically indifferent. Paul is not saying you tolerate all differences. First Corinthians is quite clear. There's a lot of differences in the way that people behave, some of which are baked into their cultures, which one should not tolerate, but should confront in the name of Christ. But then in 15, 7 to 13, 
Paul says, welcome one another, therefore, as the Messiah welcomed you to the glory of God. And he then lists several quotations from scripture. And you can tell when Paul really means to do this thoroughly because he quotes from the law and the prophets and the writings, which is a good Jewish way of saying, bang, bang, bang. Every segment of scripture is coming with coming with me on this. And the last quotation he has is from Isaiah chapter 11. And he quotes from verse 10. There shall be the root of Jesse, the one who rises to rule the nations, and in him the nations will hope. But as so often in Paul, what you have to do is to take the one verse and then pan back a bit and say, hang on, what's (coughs) that whole passage about? What is Isaiah 11, 1 to 10 all about? And it is about the fact that when the Messiah comes, then justice will be done because God's new creation will flood the world with peace and harmony and the wolf will lie down with the lamb and so on and a little child will lead them. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain because, and this is the great biblical hope, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh, that Adonai, as the waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? The waters are the sea. So this whole vision of Isaiah 1 to 10 is a vision of God's coming uh, earth-filling glory in which all creation will live in harmony. And here's Paul's point. You, if you are in Christ, get to do this in advance. You get to be, by your unity across traditional barriers, you get to be the sign to the world that there really is new creation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, so that now, because of that forgiving work of the cross, we can be all one in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is en Christo, this is Second Corinthians 5, I'm quoting, new creation, kinectesis, what will that look like? It will look like the people's getting together, the people's being part of one another. So this is the agenda which then we stand back and we say, hang on, where do we see this in the Gospels themselves? Well, we see it right at the beginning. Who was it came to welcome the Christ child in Matthew chapter 2? Well, it was strange, wise men from the East. They certainly weren't Jews. The Jews would have regarded them as Gentiles, but they knew a thing or two and they're welcomed and they have seen and they're following the star which they believe in God's good creation is leading them to Israel's Messiah. And then no surprises in Matthew 8, when uh, a centurion shows enormous faith in Jesus. And Jesus says, yes, many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. This is the promise to which Jesus is faithful, to which the gospel writers are faithful. So that even though Jesus' own um, short public career is focused on the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as he says, and as he tells the disciples Mm -hmm. to stay focused on, Nevertheless, once he has died and been raised, then he says, go into all the world and announce the good news to every creature, Matthew 28. And so we see again in, say, Mark chapter 7, when the Syrophoenician woman uh, comes and Jesus and she have a bit of a to and fro banter. And I think there's a twinkle in Jesus' eye at that point when he's teasing her about, actually, I have a specific ministry 
and you at the moment aren't involved in that. She says, well, I'm happy to be a child under the, uh, uh, happy to be a dog under the table eating the crumbs that the children let fall. We find that quite offensive. I suspect, as I say, that Jesus was smiling and was teasing her and evoking from her some kind of, of faith, which Mark has then been happy to record in that chapter. And of course, at the end, for Mark, for, for, for Matthew as well, the centurion at the foot of the cross, a hard-bitten Roman soldier, comes out with, truly, this man was the son of God. And Mark, writing probably to a Roman audience, knows exactly what he's saying. Here is a good old-fashioned Gentile, a hard man, a violent man, but he has seen Jesus dying on the cross. And Mark has written the gospel in such a way that this confession of faith by the centurion echoes all the way back to the voice of God himself at Jesus' baptism. So when we read the Gospels, and John, of course, other sheep I have that are not of this fold, and there will be one fold and one shepherd, one flock and one shepherd. Throughout the Gospels, we see what then Paul and the others are implementing in the life of the church. All of us are summoned to find our identity, our ultimate identity, not in being a bit of this, a bit of that, certainly not in terms of skin pigmentation or any such thing, but rather that we are in Christ, we are new creations, because we have died with him. Paul says it best in Galatians 2. And Paul, as a uh, zealous Jew, is saying this, I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I've come out from under that old identity, and I've been given a new identity. I am crucified with the Messiah. Nevertheless, I'm alive, but it isn't me. It's the Messiah who lives in me. And as he says a chapter later, in this Messiah, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female. You are all one in Messiah Jesus. My brothers and sisters, why did we not think like this for so long? That's part of the question we'll be addressing in the second half. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Esau and Tom. Uh, really, really grateful uh, to hear your thoughts um, and your heart on the on these issues. Um, feel free to, yeah, Tom and, and Esau, just to, yes, yeah, Esau. Oh, this is not, this is not like a correction or anything, but just like one thing that's always important as, as a part of clarification, especially as it relates to the context here in North America. When the term black is used because of the complexity of slavery in the United States, it is not a reference to, 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 to skin color at all. So, for example, when you have people who are of African descent in the United Kingdom, they might say that I'm a Nigerian Brit or I'm Ugandan or whatever. But since we don't have most African-Americans, the descendants of the, of the enslaved, don't have like that family background and say I'm Nigerian, I'm Ugandan, I'm this – Black actually functions in two ways in the United States, both as a description of skin color and actually functionally in ethnicity. So the United States has this, has particularly in the, in, in the use of black or African-American, both a skin color and an ethnicity at the exact same time. And so when we use the term black, as relates to black Americans, we're actually talking to, we're talking not just about skin color, but basically what became African American culture that arose. So black then functions both as a, as a moniker for talking about like the black peoples of the world and in an African American context, particularly for, um, 
like a culture. So, for example, as it relates to white in the United States, you can kind of go back behind that and say, well, we can deconstruct white and then say I'm German or I'm Irish. But you actually can't do that very easily as it relates to African-American. We have to find another way of referring to ourselves. And so it just, it just makes this conversation a little bit tricky um, as we kind of move forward. So that's just one translation thing coming from the United Kingdom over to the United States that, that is a little bit different in the, way, in the way that we talk about ourselves. But beyond that, there's nothing else that I would add. Mm -hmm. So the reason I say that is because then black Mm -hmm. in an American context becomes a manifestation of every child and nation because we've effectively created a new ethnicity Mm -hmm. from the different ethnic groups that came into the United States that Mm -hmm. made up the kind of the descendants of the enslaved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Esau, for that clarification. It also points up the reality that at any given time and place <clears throat> where uh, cultures develop language to talk about who is who and where they come from, it's always relative to the unique history of that people in place. And um, But it's important for us to become aware of the ways that we artificially group humans together in these categories so that we can at least know what we're talking about when we use these words like white or black. Um, thank you. So I, I've got my eye on the, the question and answer stream. Um, and then also I've kind of got my own questions and I'm going to, uh, merge, the, merge this together. Um, so Esau, one, uh, in, in your opening part of your, what you shared, um, you're trying to g- give us this, the way the biblical authors thought about these words, specifically justice yeah. and how justice, yeah. um, mercy, generosity, uh, but also yeah. sin on the inverse of it, sin, yeah. uh, involving all of these combined layers, the different cultures separate, uh, and yeah. so on, whether it's personal or corporate and these kinds of things. So I think one, um, one of the challenges then is actually even hearing what the Bible or Jesus is trying to say to us because we, yeah. co- we co-opt their language into our categories. So yeah. maybe, um, what are some of the ways, and this would be, True, uh, a question for you too, Tom. What are the ways that as we have conversations about this in our church communities, in, in our ministries, that we can name that important difference and how can we rebuild our, our internal dictionaries for what these words and concepts mean that are not captive to our cultural debates? Can I, Tim, I'm assuming that a lot of people who are here, some of them are church leaders, correct? A lot of them are church leaders. Mm-hmm. One of the things, it's always helpful to do an analogy away from the heated conversation to get some clarity. And if anyone has taken biblical studies, right, and you do, you've done a word study, if you've not, you can, here's how you do a word study. What you understand is this thing called illegitimate totality t- transfer. And that's the idea that every possible meaning of a word can't be downloaded into every use of that word. So you can't like look for all of the uses of the word love and then download that into every use of the, of the word. But the other thing that you learn when you learn um, about biblical studies is that different authors have different shades of meaning. So like what Paul may have in mind when he uses the word might be different than what James has in mind when he uses the word. So responsible biblical interpretation means understanding a word in the context of the worldview of the particular writer. Now, we understand this as a general idea of how both biblical language works and how discourse works. Like words aren't these like um, kind of closed ideas. They, they fit within the context of the worldview. One of the things that I see happening is that when we leave, when Christians have a dialogue, they kind of get rid of that rule. 
So in other words, when I say justice, the only way to understand what I mean by that phrase is to look at how I've spoken, how my general worldview, how I talk about the world and my Christian values. And so when I say justice, you must assume as a matter of course, that these are the things that I have in mind. You can't just grab something that a secular person who talks about justice says and says, Esau, you defend this. And what happens is we've lost the ability to understand one another. And we think that words activate worldviews that they would then see these worldviews that enter to the gospel. So instead, we don't have conversations with one another. We have conversations with ideologies. And so what is really necessary is actually, this sounds weird, sounds very simple, but for Christians to actually listen to one another and assume that you're talking to the person in front of you, not some book that you read about the subject or what someone said on Fox News, right? And so the amount of time that I spend saying to people, that's not what I mean, when they'll say, explain yourself. And I'll go, I wrote a whole book. <laughs> Here's 15 articles. And so or, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to in the next session, there's an entire black Christian tradition of talking about these things. And so the first thing that we need to do is take seriously the idea that individuals mean what they mean in the context of a worldview, in the context of a particular thing. So in other words, I can't just pull out, this is the Romans world, right? I can't just pull out this one verse from Paul instead of understanding how what Paul says in this part of Romans fits within the larger flow of the argument. So actually, if we would actually apply biblical hermeneutics to understanding how communication works, then I think that we would actually make a lot of progress in society. But instead, what we do is, we think that a word activates an entire worldview, illegitimate totality transfer, that allows us to avoid engaging with the topic at all. And I think that's just that's slander and bearing false witness. It's actually a sin if you want to talk about it. I just just a brief comment, and actually I so enjoy Esau's exposition there that I'd forgotten what the original question was. Where it was was it about was it about justice, Tim? Uh, yeah, but particularly about how uh, modern audiences read these words. Yeah, uh, yeah, but we, and, we co-opt them into our modern categories. Yeah. That, that's right. And um, I have observed over the course of my lifetime, particularly over the last 20, 30 years, with the rise of the Internet and social media, that people think in slogans and they don't want to be joggled out of the meanings that they have for those slogans. And I run into this the whole time. Um, it's it's also partly a transatlantic thing that uh, people in the UK don't use all the words they use in exactly the same sense as Americans do. Um, one of the BBC's Washington correspondents wrote a book recently about Americans. Um, and the title of the book was, If Only They Didn't Speak English. In other words, the fact that you guys speak something which we both call English masks the fact that we often don't mean quite the same by things. We have different cultural expectations. This is really difficult because the English-speaking people tend not to bother about other languages too much. So we assume that words only mean the one thing that we think they mean. Anyway, th- this this is a general postmodern problem. It's a general social media problem. But we, and as Christians, we ought to be scrupulous about um, what exactly people are meaning in the Bible and in our own discourse. Anyway, that's that's the general point. Mm-hmm. Um, Isa, you uh, you made a comment. Uh, that Tom, you actually kind of flagged and it, it caught my attention too about, um, cultures. And I, you had your finger on American culture, um, okay. where there are forces that are denying, uh, racism that goes beyond the individual, uh, 
yeah. the individual's estimation of another. There are there are there are large swaths of American society that find it hard to even see what a term like systemic yeah. racism refers to. And you you've called that a kind of overrealized eschatology. I'm a theology nerd. I know what that phrase means, but I, that's a very meaningful, insightful comment. Could you unpack that? Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that it's really important to do, and I'm just not going to be able to do it here, is to be as charitable as you can with people with whom you disagree. Hmm. And you try to explain these things over and over again. But sometimes it's also important to expose things to make no theological sense from a Christian. So we're going to talk as Christians here, right? So we don't believe overrealized eschatology. The, the phrase means that the, the the idea that the kingdom of God has been has been in some sense realized more fully in our current existence than um, than it is that the full transformation of the world um, it awaits God's coming. And so, oftentimes, opponent proponents of people who talk about justice are accused of having an overrealized eschatology. They say that we're trying to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And so what I did is I actually said something a little bit different. And this is what I mean when I say things make no theological sense. And we've got to think this through as being rigorously like Christian about this. Christians don't believe that people um, evolve out of sin, that you're born with the propensity to commit greed, like because your parents overcame greed, you're not born with the with that ability. You, you, you're born with the propensity to, 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 to commit those same sins again. So we don't believe in kind of an evolutionary view of society. We believe that human beings can commit any sin that human beings have ever done. And so we don't have this idea that any particular sin has been defeated, like a race from human existence. So greed, like every society is born with the propensity to like be greedy or lust. These things exist in the world. And these things affect the way society functions. Christians don't deny this. This is just like Christianity 101. The only exception to that rule is racism. Christians believe, some do effectively, that we've evolved out of racism. That for the most part, racism is a sin we've dealt with, and it's mostly gone. And that where it does exist, it only exists through interpersonal like animus. But the only way to, to maintain that idea is to say that no one who is racist has social power. Because if you have social power and you have a sin, you can you can kind of enforce that sin on the wider society. So, for example, if you're greedy and you want to have power, you can give some of your money to the to lobbyists who then get laws in your advantage. So we can see how greed attached to power leads to laws that disadvantage poor people. So the theory has to be then that nobody in society is racist any in any place that has any social power. That's a strange idea. It makes no theological sense. The other option that you would have to say, because the other thing the Bible says about humans, is that there's spiritual forces in the world. That what we have is not just individual evil, but spiritual powers that corrupt human beings. Well, the idea of the spiritual powers would say, you know what, we used to use racism as a tool for dividing people, but we're going to switch tactics now, and the spiritual powers won't use racism anymore, also makes no theological sense. So the evidence would suggest like the theological evidence would suggest, A, there will be centers of social power who have the center of racism, or that there will be spiritual powers that then use racial racism as a way of dividing people. When you add to that the testimony of actual people of color, black people, Asian people, Latino, Latina people, and, and they say, I'm experiencing racism. And the Bible and our theology would expect it. The reasons for denying it seem to me to have to be ideological. 
not rooted in biblical text. Because the biblical text would, would, would lead you to believe that you would have a propensity towards this thing, not its elimination. And so even, and I'm sorry, you, you asked the question, it's going to take a little bit more time. Fine. Racism is the only sin that we can be tired of. What I mean is no one says, no church says, I'm tired of telling husbands to be faithful to their wives. We've talked about faithfulness enough. Let's go on to something else. I'm tired about, no, no, like marital faithfulness is something that you fight for the entirety of your marriage from beginning to end. So racism, just like these other things, like adultery, are things that don't go away, but they're part of an ongoing conversation. Imagine if a pastor had said, I preached my tithing sermon once five years ago and the issue is resolved. Or I preached my parenting sermon once five years ago and the issue is resolved. It's only the racial conversation. that We preach once or in the context of tragedy that gets in the news cycle and then it goes away. Instead of seeing it as an ongoing part of Christian discipleship as a sin that exists amongst other sins. Esau, thank you for your clarity and your candor. And I'm sorry, and, and, I, and I say that, and when you say when you say stuff like this, they they you 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 get called everything but a child of God. And so, forgive me if I if I if I if I've lost um, some of the patience and the whimsomeness that you have to be able to have to tell the truth. But at a certain point, you got to ask yourselves, really, what is the conversation we're having in America? And the conversation we have in America makes no sense. And Tom won't want to say this, but I'll say it. I did my PhD in the United Kingdom. The British evangelicals don't do this. You can look at John Stott and the Louisiana Conference and look at British evangelicalism and see that in the UK, the UK is not perfect. Like there's no utopia. But the unique divide of Christian faithfulness, of fidelity to the scriptures, and suspicion of social action is a uniquely American phenomenon. Because if you don't want to talk about the UK because you're mad at the Brits, you can run over to the global South and, and watch the, um, the people in the global South who are evangelicals who are also talking about these issues. It's an American problem. Run over to Brazil and see the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And so it is a, it, it, it is a unique American heresy that we need to deal with. Mm-hmm. This is just footnote to that. Thank you, Esau. That's great. Um, it's a fascinating thing as I come and go between Britain and America uh, that many, many British evangelicals, politically speaking, tend to be left of center. Uh, I don't really like the left-right polarization, but that's a loose way of putting it. And we're always surprised when we come to America and find that it ain't necessarily so there, to say the least. And, And so we have to be very careful about, again, about the labels. And it's another case of what Esau was saying before. But um, in terms of which words mean which things in different contexts. Uh, I have a question. It's inspired by uh, one that was in the question feed. uh, And it's something that I thought of, too. Uh, Tom, as you were doing uh, your quick survey of a Pauline theology of the unity of the family of the Messiah, uh, and also, Esau, this is a point raised in your book that was really helpful for me. It's about, uh, the, it all comes together in Galatians 3.28. In the Messiah, no, male or female, slave or three, um, barbarian, Scythian, and so on. Um, so uh, Joshua is asking, how do you see Paul addressing power uh, imbalances in the church between Jews and Gentiles? 
he acknowledges that in the new humanity, there is no division between those categories, Jew and Gentile, male and female. But there are, of course, still massive, massive uh, cultural historical differences and imbalances. So, um, Esau, you had a point about, you just you called it the colorblind reading of Galatians 3.28 as a way of misreading what Paul's doing. Uh, and then, uh, Tom, you've written a lot on Paul's vision and explored a lot of the multi-ethnic family of God. How is it both a vision of unity, but that doesn't erase or become blind to cultural differences? Yeah, that, that's it's a really important point because for me as an elderly white male, I am very much aware because good friends have pointed to me and said, beware of this one, that when I say there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor male and female, it can sound to some people as though I'm saying you can all now be honorary white males. And of course, that, that is absurd. But sadly, that is how many people from my tradition and similar ones have seen it, that, that we will now allow you to join our club, as it were. We, however, don't have to change. And it's something that white males in our context, I'll say more about whiteness in the second half, um, have to learn that we all have to die. This is what baptism is about. It's about dying to one's own identity. However, then in the New Testament, Paul says, you know, nevertheless, I, I am still alive. And in Romans 11, he says, I am a Jew. I'm a descendant of Abraham, etc., etc. So uh, he hasn't been erased as a Jew. And that word erasure or erased um, has all sorts of connotations in our present context, of course. Um, however, the primary identification is En Christo in Christ. And as soon as any other identity that we might want to say, I have this or I am that, um, challenges what it means to be died and risen again with the Messiah, um, then we're in serious trouble. There are major issues down that line, but we've got to get that balance right. And we cannot then say, oh, um, if you say there is neither Jew nor Greek, you're, you're erasing me. Um, that's a kind of typical postmodern reaction. Um, and, and this is where we need very careful thought and, and wise and prayerful thought and humble thought. And I say it to myself as much as to anyone else. I, I would say one of the things, once again, is, and this is what we talked about. Sometimes you have to talk about things that make theological sense of things that don't. Like we never say, well, there, there's one version of biblical scholarship that we won't address right now because this is not this conversation. But no one, no, no one says, I don't see gender because of Jew, male nor female in the first part of that. Like that's not a part of the conversation because we recognize that Paul recognizes that men and women exist as categories of human existence. Now, what is the, what is the question then that Paul is actually dealing with? Paul is dealing with the question of, as it relates to the question of justification, does something give you more standing before God? So as it relates to, what gets you more and more, like more or less credit? You being a male or female doesn't give you a, a higher place in the hierarchy as it relates to the Christian family. You being a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, doesn't matter. And so what we're talking about here then is what Paul is talking about when you're making an argument about our essential work, work before God. One of the interesting things seem to get twisted around though is that when African Americans then began to say, okay, not me being black makes me better than white Christians, but me being black is part of what God created and it is good, then you're actually using Galatians incorrectly. Paul never intended Galatians to function to step on affirmation of diversity. 
he uses a step on affirmations of a hierarchy of value. And so if I say that like being African-American is good and being British is good and being Ugandan is good, then I'm not in violation of um, Galatians 3.28. And so I do think that there is a form of nationalism that runs, that can manifest itself in any tradition in which Galatians 3.28 can kind of, um, um, Manifests itself. And a good example of that would be American exceptionalism, right? The idea that there's something American that makes us, you know, amazing and whatever. And so what I want to say then is that the, what is often used for Paul, and the reason that Paul did this, this is the important part. The reason that Paul did this is because there will be a tendency to ascribe value to the higher portion on that hierarchy. So in other words, a male may have thought that he had more value than a female or a Jew might have thought he had a Jewish Christian might have thought he had a higher place than the Gentile Christian. And so what Paul is saying then is that no, 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 we're actually equal. So then when there's an African American or a person or an ethnic minority who's contending for their standing, the people of God, and then it's being used to push down on that expression is literally the opposite of what Paul used. Paul never intended for Galatians 3, 28, to push back on the, the, the people who are perceived as the underclass asserting their value before God. Yeah, and so that's the reason why I say that the colorblind um, reading of Galatians 3.28 is flawed because of the way that it functions in American rhetoric. Because when, yeah. when it functions is, when I started talking about racism, people go, well, I don't see race. Well, that's not how Paul intended this to function. Paul used it to say, in a world that sees these two things as being a hierarchy of different values, in Christ, they're essentially the same. And we'll get into it. We'll get into if we had another time, which is a different question. And this is what Paul, this is what Tom was getting at. The tendency to collapse Jewish Christian into modern white Christian. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that everyone's being included into whiteness or well, I don't even like to use the term whiteness included into kind of the white European way of, of, of functioning in the world. Instead of struggling with the idea that the Jews, even though Paul is humbling them, has some real right to have pride because their culture actually came from God. It was the Torah. And so Paul's doing much more theological work in that context to say to a Jewish Christian, no, 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 we're equal. Then in in our context, which Paul never imagined, Tom talked about this earlier, Paul never imagined that one Gentile culture would think it was better than another Gentile culture. That would be unthinkable. He would say we're all a part of the great unwashed before the coming of the Messiah. And so it is this idea that we subtly replace Paul's um, equalizing Jewish and non-Jewish believers with equalizing different ethnicities with the with the um, white Western European context being the thing into which we all ascend. And that's not what's going on in Galatians. And which is which has, of course, been reinforced by uh, a cultural perception in Western Europe in the 18th and 19th century, that we were the ones who had Christianity and were giving it to the rest of the world. Um, rather than in the famous saying, one beggar telling another beggar where you can find some food. Um, and it's, we'll, we'll maybe get to that sort of stuff later on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I may actually need to transition to the break, but I, I kind of hold the cards for the moment. So I'm going to have one more <laughs> thing on the table real quick. Um, um, in Ephesians 2, the, the Pauline vision of unity, again, that's such an important articulation of, of this theme in the New Testament, um, where Paul has the model for him is the story through Jesus of non-Jews being integrated into the new humanity um, by becoming co-heirs, um, co-participants of the promise to Israel. And that model 
um, as an analog? How, how does what happened in the first century um, and what Paul's articulating, how does that, sorry, there's a leaf blower out my window, so I don't know if y'all can hear it. Uh, how does that model both help us identify certain things in our cultural context now? And how is that analog different? And so we need to clarify what that difference is, but still address the issues in our day. You, you really do, because it, it's always risky to take something which has uniquely happened as a result of the gospel in the first century and make it an example or generalized truth for everything else. People do this endlessly with Acts 15. Oh, look, Jew and Gentile, do you have to get circumcised? And guess what? The people in Jerusalem are always cast as the conservatives, and the people who are not are always cast as, as, as the nice, good, free-loving liberals. And then you can play that out in whichever situation you like in today's church. And that's that's bad exegesis. Likewise, the, the, this is because of the uniqueness of Israel and the purposes of God from the call of Abraham right through to the Messiah. And you can see Paul telling that story. This is not an example of something else, of a general truth. This is the reality. So when Paul then says, we have now had the major transition which comes through Israel's Messiah being crucified and risen. It isn't that Israel ceases to matter. It's that Israel is summed up in the Messiah. Now, that doesn't happen again. People sometimes talk about the European Reformation in the 16th century as though that was a great moment when suddenly everything changed. And the Enlightenment saw itself in the same way in the 18th century. Everything that went before is now old hat and we've now got the new thing, which is a way of sort of running the Christian narrative about some aspect of modern culture. That's always ultimately self-serving and idolatrous. We have to be very careful of it. But having said that, then there are spin-offs, there are ways in which we can very carefully and prayerfully play it out in terms of, okay, so if we have this situation, how might that apply? But it's always at a kind of a secondary, almost a figural reading of Scripture. And we have to be very careful then when we, when we build too much on what was a unique moment. Can I, I'll say one more thing to, um, sorry, this may be a mutual affirmation. The reason why we did, I did my PhD with the man. So one of the things we should look at, at why Paul, how Paul does theology, and this is actually important. Paul could have said, you know, I mean, he probably, he wouldn't be Paul if he did. He could have said all of this stuff that happened before, we're just tossing those things aside and now we're doing something new. But in places like Romans and Galatians, Paul is at pains to say that the inclusion of the Gentiles is not a plan B, but it's a manifestation of what God had always intended to do. So in other words, Paul was trying to say how Gentile inclusion within the people of God is a manifestation of God's eternal plan. In places like Ephesians, he says it goes back from before God even created the world. And so one of the things that we can say then is that unity as a general rule of Jews and Gentiles and what our divisions are a manifestation of, like a division. God had always planned to create a family. And in that sense, you can say that like Ephesians applies because God wanted to create a family and there should be unity within the family. Rather than saying the analogy is between Jews and Gentiles and African-Americans, for example, and white, and then you leave out the Asian community in the United States. Now, the last thing that I want to say, and this is really important, what does frustrate me is that when majority white churches want to give the, the diversity sermon and they say we should go and be more diverse and then they use Ephesians chapter two, the rhetorical posture makes white Christians, the Jewish people, 
to whom the Gentiles, the ethnic minorities are being included in. And so the idea is we need to go get the other people to come and join us. And that's the rhetorical, and that's the rhetorical posture that Tom is trying to warn from is the idea that you can just make this analogy without being careful. And I would say the more helpful way to do it is to actually follow Paul's theological conclusion. Sometimes when you have a sermon in search of a text, you get into a problem. But if you follow Paul's own logic is, Hey, Gentiles, you're not an innovation in God's plan. God always wanted to make one people in the Messiah. And so then if we have modern divisions rooted in something other than the divisions that separated the people in the first century, the unity in the Messiah addresses those divisions without Ephesians 2 being about those divisions. And I think this is a distinction we have to make. And I do think that we should really take some time, if you're going to preach Ephesians, not to tell you how to preach it, but explain why the Jews would have reason for, for pride. They, like these are these are Gentiles who are like off being like read read about Roman culture in the first century and compare it to what was going on in Judaism. And you could see why instinctively the Jewish people would think, no, like we've been being like we've been the people of God forever. Yeah, we got the Messiah. We know how to do this. We've been doing it for generations. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. And then there's a his, history of those are the bad guys. And Paul going, no, 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 no. You don't get like, it's kind of like the, 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 um, the story of the son who comes in later. There is no like extra credit for being working in the field longer. And so this is what is going on in Ephesians. And it's only in that context that you begin to understand why Paul has to do so much theological work to humble the Jewish Christians. But there is no reason for that same kind of pride, at least as I understand it, in kind of what I call the, you know, the great Gentile Christianity, where like we don't have these kind of culture hierarchies that would have existed different than the first century. So, so good. Thank you. Thank you both. Very, very insightful. Um, there is uh, a small army of people in the chat who are saying no break. Oh, yes, Esau, go ahead. No, so we're gonna take the five minute break. I was giving you the five minute break sign. It'll be fine. Oh, totally. Yes, I agree. I'm I'm gonna override the small army that's resisting the break um, because I know I need uh, what I call a bio break, and I'm guessing Esau and Tom might as well. So uh, we're gonna take our, our break here and transition. It's unnatural. This is, but we have to. We're gonna do it. Uh, we want to again thank our co-host, Regent College, uh, Portland uh, Seminary, and Seattle Pacific Seminary. Super grateful that you would help us foster this conversation. I think a timer is going to start and uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Well, you can tell this was on Zoom. You have to love the references to the chat box and Esau asking for the promise break. But as you heard, that does conclude part one of this talk. When they did it live, they took a five minute break. You can take as long as you need to. But when you're ready, part two is available now on the Together PDX podcast.